Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 10, verses 22 to 29. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I feel I need to get my one Super Bowl comment or joke out of the way. Um, I will admit it's been a little more peaceful because um, my team is not is on vacation. Yours may be as well soon. I guess the good thing about today is the team in red will win, and the bad thing is the team in red will win. But I'll still get to eat. So we are going to make our way through this final portion of this narrative that proclaims that Jesus is a good shepherd. He can be a shepherd, but we're not here to deceive you in any way. We do not believe, nor do we think that the scriptures present to you that Jesus is just simply one option of many. You can choose that route. And... I don't think you reap the benefit that he desires for you, which is, in the end of our passage, eternal life. And hopefully, regardless of whatever situation you're in, you would be encouraged or reminded, maybe instructed, that he is a good shepherd. We may not necessarily always agree with or understand that goodness. I can only imagine for... The younger folks in this room, your experience is no different than mine was many years ago. And it's funny, my parents still look at me as if I'm 12, and maybe I still acted, I'm not sure. But their decisions were not always appreciated. Their leadership in my life, not perfect, but certainly their will for me and the sacrifices, the investments made, etc. often they were good but not recognized to be such. So God presents himself here as a good shepherd, and I'd like to think he's wiser than me or any of us, that he knows better. And if he is timeless, omniscient, omnipresent, all that good stuff, then again, it's highly more likely that his desire for us is better than ours for ourselves. So be encouraged whether you are in difficult, even seemingly impossible circumstances to withstand. And if you're not, and you're kind of like me, people ask me, how are things going? And I say, well, my kids are far from me. Life is good. So out of sight, out of mind, there's something to that. But even for me, because I am a fallen person in a fallen world with fallen people, 
there is something that awaits me. And I need to be reminded to have this in my spiritual back pocket, that Christ is good. But it's better than having it as something that I can simply pull out, but something that has been saturating my life. So that when that challenge comes, I don't have to wrestle with whether it is still good or true or valid. So we're going to make our way through John chapter 12. And we're going to start with verse 24. If you have your Bibles open, it will be helpful as we make our way through this. In verse 24, it reads, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. The word Jews often in the New Testament refers to a group of people who are deliberately intentionally out to get Jesus. They want to corner him and they want to have him trip over his own words or say something so plain, at least according to their own definitions, that they can indict him on charges of blasphemy. And if he is found guilty, and if he is blasphemous, then he should be stoned, according to the Old Testament. I remember early in my ministerial life, there was a student who, a college student who used to ask lots of great questions. He would attend every Bible study. And just from those two indicators, you think he was a great student, a great contributor. But actually, it had become aware, I had become aware very soon and quickly that this particular student never really wanted to know what the Bible said or what God meant, or even if it was true. He just wanted to find me stumble in my own words. He wanted to corner me and be able to put the pastor in a corner in a position where he didn't have anything to say so as to squirm. And sure, none of us has all the answers. And that's what the people that Jesus primarily is thinking about and has in focus, that's their intent. They want to corner Jesus to get him in a public situation where he's going to say something that everyone indisputably, unanimously is going to say, there's no way this guy is the Messiah. There's no way he's the Christ, the one sent from God, because that's what he's claiming to be. In verse 25, it reads, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. So they're asking him to say it in a different way. And Jesus is thinking, I, I don't get what you don't get because I've said it very clearly and very simply who I am and what point I'm making about who I am. He's, Jesus is not trying to be coy. He's not trying to be elusive. He's not trying to deceive or to be really ambiguous. He's actually quite clear. And whether or not you're a believer here today, I think you would agree if you read over at least the Gospel of John, it's very clear who Jesus claims to be, whether or not you believe him to actually be that. And here are a few examples. In John 2, it describes a story where Jesus um, cleanses the temple. 
And he says that this temple is my father's house. Now, on the surface and in English, it seemed like, oh, there's nothing really controversial about that. But basically what he's saying is that I and the father are equal. We're one. In John 5, Jesus heals an invalid man. And the Pharisees are troubled because he's doing this on the Sabbath. And they're so concerned about what it means to work and rest on the Sabbath. Because God's law tells us we're not to work and we're to rest. What does that mean? And here Jesus is saying, well, I'm healing. How is that bad? Certainly that brings God glory. But to raise the ante to a greater point, Jesus refers to God as his own father again, basically making that claim that I and the father are one and equal. In John 6, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And he says, I am what the manna back in the Old Testament in the wilderness was pointing to. I'm the one who comes down from heaven. You eat of me and you'll never hunger again. And how can you make a greater claim than that? And even in that particular chapter and in that situation, the Pharisees were deeply upset. In John 8, he calls himself the light of the world. He's not just someone who kind of adds to the pod and brings some illumination. I have some good things to say. I've got some wisdom too to add. No, he's saying, I'm the one that brings light to the whole world because the world is dark. In John 8, even more profoundly and offensively to the Pharisees, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, Jesus isn't just showing you he's got bad grammar. Jesus is basically referring himself to the very name of God, God's own proclamation of who he is in the Old Testament, I am who I am. I and the Father are one. So there, there are plenty of places, in, at least in the Gospel of John, where Jesus is making himself very clear. He doesn't have to say the words that they want to hear. If anything, they can, whether, even though the charge is illegitimate, they can make the indictment, the accusation, that this man claims to be the Son of God. And Jesus would say, yeah, you just came to that realization? So it's become very clear, and yet they're still asking him to be plain and simple, which only speaks to their own blindness. And Jesus has, not, in, not just in words, but also in deed, in the things that he's done, he's declared that he is this Messiah. Now, if we look at the miracles, and you believe those miracles to be true, and they've been recorded historically, and they're accurate, I guess you could walk away and simply say, oh, this guy was somehow endowed with some supernatural power. Sure. But for the Jews, when they saw that happening, they should have or would have thought at a different angle from a different perspective. Jesus is telling them that you know what the Messiah was going to look like simply based on what was already written in the Old Testament. The clues, the promises, the prophecies about the coming Messiah, who's going to restore all of his people, bring salvation and make everything right in a broken world. You know the clues that God had given. And there would be all these supernatural occurrences. 
And so if you see those and you see him, she's saying that's evidence enough, proclamation enough to show you that I'm the one that has been prophesied because you believe that those prophecies point to the Messiah, to the one that God would send. If you have, um, actually, let's turn to Luke chapter 7. Here in this story, we have John the Baptist, who is a bit curious to see whether Jesus really is the one that he should be waiting for. And starting with verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. So notice to John's disciples, he doesn't say, yes, I am. He doesn't have to. In fact, to them, it was more powerful for Jesus to refer to these miracles. Again, not from the way you and I would typically interpret them. Because if we saw these miracles, we'd say there's something special about him. But almost like a generic special, if there's such thing. But Jesus is referring to the Old Testament specific prophecies and promises that say, you will recognize this guy that I send, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who will save you. You will recognize him by these supernatural miracles. In fact, there's two places in particular. There's so many others, but we'll just pick two. Isaiah 35, verses 4 to 5. It reads, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then in Isaiah 42, verses 6 to 7, Another prophecy regarding the Messiah. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the, for the people, a light for the nations. Interestingly, Jesus, as we already considered, Jesus is the light of the world. Verse 7. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. These guys knew these promises. If you're, if you're a church person like me, you would have, from your earliest ages, years, have a vision of what Jesus looked like or what he did, what he was dressed like, etc. From your Sunday school stories from reading the Bible, from reading the Gospels, or those little um, children's stories about Jesus. Well, for these guys, 
with because they didn't have the old the New Testament. They were raised in the Old Testament. And they were raised very well, repeatedly, very clearly, that a Messiah one was coming. Life is bad. And a Messiah is going to be sent from God, and he's going to make everything right. Well, the kids would have asked, or if they didn't, they would have been told anyway, this is what the Messiah is going to look like. He's going to perform these great deeds, acts, wonders, miracles. And among them are opening the blinded eyes so that people can see. Allowing the deaf to see or hear. He is going to raise people from the dead. And Jesus, as he's performing these, again, their Sunday school, to use that phrase, their Sunday school knowledge should have kicked in. It would have kicked in. And they should have looked at him and said, that's him. That's the Messiah. But on the one hand, the reason why they don't is that shows you the great power of sin. That for someone who doesn't believe that Christ is the one sent from God, the Son of God, to die on the cross for sinners, it's because of sin. It blinds them, and only God can open those eyes. Now, similarly, for someone like someone who is a believer, so if you're a believer today, don't think that you're completely immune to the effects of unbelief. Because we could fill our minds and our hearts with so many other stuff, other thoughts, unbiblical ideas. We could even grow out of practice with walking in step with the Lord. Or we can maybe, in lack of discipline in our walk, through our prayer life and devoting ourselves to His Word, whatever it may be, we could wander from Him to the point where the effects of unbelief from sin cause great damage in our lives. That we as believers can start to doubt. God, are you able? Is this really true? I've been taught for so long that, God, you're good. I don't know. This hurts a lot. And I just don't see how it's getting better. Or, God, I seem to be doing the right stuff. And yet my children seem to be going further from the Lord. So we grow in doubt and not in confidence in the Lord. Unbelief, sin is that powerful. As a side comment, what, what Jesus is wanting for us to see is that his word, now fulfilled in him, accompanied by the things that he's done, and Jesus himself being the very word incarnate fulfilled, that's all you need to dispel, rid, and defeat unbelief. It's all you need. So whether it's a child, whether it's your spouse, maybe it's your loved one, parent, a sibling, like my brother, your neighbor, your friend, whoever it may be, the only way they will come to the Lord and see that he is not just a shepherd, but the good shepherd is by the word, nothing else. In fact, there's a story in the Gospel of Luke. It's not described in any other Gospels. In chapter 16, it's titled Lazarus and the Rich Man. And at the end of the story, you find a bit of irony. 
Because the person that you thought would be with Abraham after death is actually in hell. And Lazarus, who on this earth groveled and begged for food, even crumbs, he later finds himself at the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man begs Abraham, and he says, can you send someone from the dead to my brothers? I mean, that would work, right? Most of us would say, it's got to do something, a miracle. The response that Abraham gives is, he has Moses and the prophets. In other words, even the gospel prophesied, promised, is good enough. It's the only way. Wonderfully, you and I are on this side of history where Jesus has come. And there's a little more detail, a little more information about what that means, a little more theology fleshed out from the one promised in the Old Testament. That's all you need. Don't put your faith in anything else. Keep praying that the word breaks through. And the only one that opens blinded eyes is Jesus, is God. Now, what's interesting in this, in verse 26, is it says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You know, they asked Jesus, tell us really, are, are you who you say you are or, or you're claiming to be? What is this? Speak, you know, in simple language. Well, if you look at verse 26, notice what he says. He says, you're not my sheep. So even in that one verse, he's already declared himself to be the great shepherd. So he not only gives them another opportunity, he repeats himself, reaffirming, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to backtrack. I'm not going to recant what I said before. I'm just going to repeat it. I'm the great shepherd. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. And you have to follow me. But that simply angers them even more. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. We've talked about that in previous weeks. And this good shepherd from chapter 10 is the one who calls us. He doesn't wait for us to simply respond or to just simply know what to do or to see if we can come to him. He calls out to us. It's that word, that voice that draws us to him. He owns us. We are not just simply things he borrows. We're not temporary. We're not of someone else's possession. We are his. He leads his sheep. He goes before his sheep. And as this great shepherd, he doesn't steal. He doesn't kill or destroy. He's not about his benefit. In fact, the gospel can be described as something where Jesus gave everything of himself so that you and I could benefit, even though we aren't worthy. He lays down his, his life willingly and with joy. When there are wolves, he doesn't flee. He doesn't run, but he sticks around to protect. He cares and he knows. And we talked about that last week, how that knowledge isn't simply acquaintance knowledge, or we've met before, or I know your name, or we hung out a few times. It is akin to sexual knowledge. It is as deep as you can get. That he knows us better than we know ourselves. That is the good shepherd. And then the verse 28 to 29. I give them eternal life that they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, 
and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. Up until now, we see great emphasis on today. Jesus is a good shepherd today. And the biblical affirmation is, again, regardless of the circumstance you may be embroiled in, however difficult it may be, however many tears you may have shed in recent days, he is still good today. But verse 28, 29 takes us a bit further and doesn't allow us to speculate or to doubt whether tomorrow he will still be there. Or just even to say, theoretically, I guess he will. But there's a guarantee in verse 28, 29 that nothing can touch you or take you. Because you're in God's hands. If you know his voice, he is your shepherd. You are his sheep. You are in the Father's hands. And they're not open-palmed. That when I look at this, I see God closing, clasping. And nothing can get in to take that. So let's return back to verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Most commentaries are going to tell you that John throws in this little bit of detail just to simply let you know that time has progressed from the previous passages or to let you know what time of the year it was. And I think certainly that's part of it. But I think there's a bigger deal regarding the Feast of Dedication, and you may or may not be familiar with it. You know, when July hits and you go to Costco, you know that Halloween is right around the corner. When Halloween is over on November the 1st, you know that Christmas, even though it's about 50 days away, it's right around the corner. You just know these things. It just It's in the air, and people start putting out their lights. And it's, at least in July, if you're thinking about Halloween, it's still 90 degrees and 90% humidity. You're not thinking foliage. You're not thinking pumpkins, even though now half of Costco is filled with pumpkin this and pumpkin that. These people were there, and there was this great holiday being celebrated called the Feast of Dedication. Now, again, that may not really ring a bell with you, but it's connected with the modern-day um, holiday called Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. So to kind of go back a little bit, the Feast of Dedication originates back during a period of time that Protestants have called the period when God was silent. For 400 years, from Malachi's day to Matthew's, 400, four centuries, God was silent. He didn't speak. No inscripturation, we believe. And that was for certain reasons. But during that time, the Jewish people found themselves under the rule of the Syrians particularly under the rule of a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus decided, contrary to his predecessor, Alexander the Great, in the second century, Antiochus decided he was going to invade Jerusalem, capture it, and seize the temple. And so in 168, that's what he does. He's, he takes control of Jerusalem. He takes over the temple. And now he has repurposed this temple, which was used to the glory of Yahweh, now to the glory of Zeus. 
And he does the one thing that of all is maybe the most sacrilegious in Judaism. He enters the temple, goes to the altar, and he sacrifices a pig. The one animal that symbolized uncleanness in the Jewish, Jewish religion. And a man by the name of Judas Maccabees, he leads a revolt against the Syrians. He is successful. He retakes the temple and he rededicates it to the Lord. Now, just as a side comment, you may be wondering, what does that have to do with Hanukkah? The story is that he had just enough oil to light a candle for one night. But that one night's worth of oil lasted for eight days. Regardless, if you are a Jewish person celebrating the festival of dedication, the feast of dedication, and you are remembering of the atrocities of the Syrians, that could probably even jog your mind a few centuries earlier to the fourth century when the Babylonians seized the temple and they destroyed it. And as much as you have all this confidence and this assurance from scripture, these affirmations that God is with you, you have seen some pretty bad things. Some things that are meant to contest and challenge and dissuade you from those truths. So they're remembering not too long ago, this temple was dedicated to Zeus. You can only imagine the insecurity there as a people. So maybe they weren't necessarily completely saturated with the past. I know for me, when I think of 9-11, it brings me back. I know exactly where I was. And for some reason on that day, I, like I always did, I had the radio on. But I'm not a music listener. I like to listen to the news. I remember listening to it and thinking, no way. It just seemed fictional. I remember staring at that TV for weeks. I remember so much. And it's still like as if the memories are fresh. So for them, even though it's a little farther removed, they would know because their people would have reminded them of God and of the world they live in. And I'm sure they would have been told that God is far stronger and you need to cling to his promises and be confident in the Lord. But they couldn't help but to look outside their window and see Roman soldiers. And to think, when will God save us? Or maybe even worse, has God abandoned us? I thought we were his covenanted people. I thought he told us long ago, I will be your people, or I will be your God, and you'll be my people. Where is the truth in that? It's possible, if not likely, that there were doubts as they're even celebrating the Feast of Dedication. And here Jesus shows up at this particular time, where they're, if anything, moving in the right direction, trying to find confidence, where are they going to put it? Where have they? They put it in this building. As long as we have this temple, God is with us. They were kind of half right. 
it wasn't a temple built with bricks, but it was the very temple of Jesus Christ in which they would be found in God. It was the one that would be called Emmanuel, God with us. It was the one that on the very last thing he says to his disciples before he leaves, he says what? I am with you to the very end of the age. Don't worry. I'm right here. The same one that says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, that even though physically I am away from you, my spirit is in your heart as a down payment of the inheritance that I give to you. This God, he says, you are in my hands. I hold you. And nothing can take you from that. And it goes even further in verse 29. It talks about how those hands take us into eternal life. That eternal life isn't just something that God gives us, like a possession. But it's an existence of being in the Father's hands. There's a sort of journey that we see in chapter 10 where Jesus meets us where we're at. He said, you're fearful of wolves and there's strangers and there's thieves and robbers. I'll protect you. And that even if more danger should come, I'll protect you. I'll be there for you. But then he takes it even further because let's be honest, if that's all it is in this lifetime, you should take the Bible's recommendation to those who don't believe in God, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. If that's all the gospel offers, I would be there to tell you, don't even bother. Just go live your life. But at the heart of it is this great promise that there is so much more so much better, far beyond our imagination. And only Jesus as the good shepherd offers that, but he guarantees that. That if there is a God and this God is good and he calls us his father, then how tight and how strong is his grip to take hold of us? That not to in any way belittle, but even illness, deprivation, loneliness, anything you add to that list cannot in any way tarnish the joy found in his, in his grip. Nothing can. We have referred to Psalm 23 on numerous occasions as we've looked at Jesus as the Good Shepherd. And I'd like for you to listen as I read through it. The great thing about what Jesus is telling us is this. It's not simply trust in me and find confidence in me because this is what I offer. What he's telling us is trust in me, put your confidence in me because this is what I offer, because this is what has been given to me. It's not just simply that we get something, which we do. It's not just simply the offerings of eternal life, which are yours in Christ. It's not just simply the love and the confidence, the protection, all that good stuff from the Good Shepherd. 
but is that Jesus experienced it himself as a sheep. Because in verse 17 in John, we're told that the father loves his sheep. Why? Because he was willing to give his life, to lay his life down. So as we close with reading Psalm 23, I'd like for you to not only hear and read yourself as the sheep in this, but read and hear yourself as a sheep because Jesus traveled this very road that you do. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. See, we lie here. We sit here. And then God says, let's go. We're going to keep moving. But it doesn't get worse. It just gets better. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Can't you hear Jesus saying these words? I will fear no evil. For you, my God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There is even comfort in death. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Imagine that, feasting in the middle of war. Feasting in the very presence, I guess that's what I'll be doing in about three hours. Feasting in the presence of your enemies. How good is that? That's my only comfort. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. No no end to that. It just keeps going. What better place to be with the Lord? And I don't even have to elaborate on what my imagination tells me. Forever in the house of the Lord. And may that be your comfort. And Jesus offers that to you today. And Jesus comforts you with that today. That only in him are you in the Father's hands. And nothing can touch you. Nothing can take you. And if you paused and were honest with yourself, anything, even the great things that God has filled our lives with, they will come, they will go. They will be great, but then they will get old. And even the very things that we love can become thorns in our sides. But it is so good to be with the shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. May it encourage us. May it comfort us today as we look to you, Jesus. Um, God, we pray for those who still respond in unbelief that your word would penetrate their hearts and minds to see that all else will fail, everything else will fade, but you will last forever. And we thank you that even the greatest that this fallen world will throw at us, 
cannot touch us, for we are found in your hands. And we thank you, O Lord, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.